0: The New Economy in Northern Ireland, Part 2, New Narratives, with Lee Robb, Mary McManus, Bridget Mean, and Tiziana O'Hara, hosted by me, Maurice McCartney. In the first episode in this series, we looked at the development of the grassroots democratic economic model known as community wealth building and asked if it could provide the basis for a new sustainable, equitable economy in Northern Ireland. But as the COVID-19 pandemic begins to lift, are we in danger of missing an opportunity?
1: The narrative is...
0: Bridget Meehan.
1: Of course, she must want to be out there consuming all the time. Of course, that's what, you know, that's why you you go to work, so that you've got money to to have this leisure, life of leisure, you know, at the weekends and to consume. And this is not trying to knock people, but... um, want to go and buy themselves something nice or, you know, go, go round the shops and have a, have a look at what's, you know, there's there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But it's the sense that we haven't been able to love for the past year or so because we haven't been able to get out and, and do all this uh, consumption like the way we, we normally have. I suppose it's just like, we're so much more than
2: consumers. Lee Robb. But it feels a bit like, you know, what you're saying, Bridget, that pill to consume is so, you know, that that's the thing that defines us as like such mm-hmm. a core part of our identity.
0: I wonder if this is the, um, you know, because the, the moment of crisis is a moment of opportunity to make to get people to think differently.
1: Yeah.
0: But are we in danger of letting it slip by and people all rushing back out and just queuing up outside Primark and whatnot? and?
1: Um, that's the thing that I, that's the thing that's crossing my mind that last year there was all this talk about um, God, isn't it wonderful the way we've all just pulled together and there's this community spirit yeah. and we don't need consumerism or we don't need all these material things. We, we've, we've got community, we've got each other. Um, we're going to get through this terrible time. And there was this optimism, even though it was kind of a very scary thing that was happening. You know something that in our lifetimes we've never seen um and there seemed to be a sense then that from that and and people take an agency and, and going back into their communities and maybe reconnecting with people or connecting with them for the first time and seeing god we actually do have communities here and we can do things um at the grassroots level but that that has slowly been eroded you don't hear that kind of talk anymore you don't hear people you know that kind of optimism that was there a year ago and the way people were um engaging with their own communities and maybe saying they wanted to see different things it's just you know that seems to have disappeared and now it's like of course we want to consume of course we want things to go back to normal of course we want to be stuck in offices again you know, kind of thing. Sorry, Tiziana. No, no, sorry.
0: Tiziana O'Hara.
1: I, I don't buy the idea of um, we are in
3: a crisis, we have an opportunity I to make a social change. I think that when you needed to really change things, you needed to do deeper. It's a systemic change. It's that kind of change. This is why all that uh, enthusiasm, didn't mature to nothing didn't really become the change that we wanted to see because it was superficial it was in emergency i think when we make a decision in emergency it's for survival and that doesn't last we cannot be in that mode all the time in survival mode we needed to find a way back to normal that it's a normal different of what was before. And in order to do that, I think that we needed to dig deeper and systemically change what we are. So in some sort of way, if the crisis was a moment of reflection, now the reflection needs to be, what do we want to be really? Still consumers, still uh, you know, enjoy Primark, Or enjoying um, the common ownership of a farm where we can uh, actually volunteer some time and co produce
2: a courgette. (laughs) I I think that's a great tagline. Let's co produce a courgette. (laughs)
3: well i love courgettes i remember the first time i came to northern (laughs) ireland i bought three courgettes it cost me (laughs) nine pounds it was one shop in (gasps) Belfast that could sell it so now i'm glad that we can have more variety more biodiversity but not because i want to be consuming that because it makes me happy that there are more things out there and it can be produced by my allotment garden, and you know, next next door to me in the, in the waterworks. So in some sort of way, that that's the. So, going back, is that the crisis was enough? For the crisis, no. But we needed to ask different questions now, I think. And, uh, and the question are about, about uh, our identity as uh, citizens, maybe. I don't know.
0: But how do we get people to dig deeper, enough to take action?
2: There's a three-part series on Radio 4 at the minute called Dare to Repair, which is the story of how we've got in such a mess with all our shit, and, um, and next week's about repair cafes. But the first part I thought was really interesting because it was like, it, it was I was thinking about how do I change a bit of my story at repair cafes? So one of the things that happens, I think I said this before, quite often is that when people arrive, they'll say, isn't it terrible? We just don't have the skills anymore. And we talk about making the skills visible because the skills are there, they're just not visible. But actually, listening to that program, that's part of it's interesting what people choose, what we all collectively choose to say and focus on, which is there's no skills for repair, and that was designed in because of planned obsolescence. That was designed into goods so that repair skills weren't needed on the high street anymore. So that you know, so it's It was just really interesting to me that that's the. The story that's reproduced that the skills aren't there when actually what happened was the manufacturers changed their business model. So that um, they could they would produce stuff with less durable components made from plastic and then they find out that when they broke well they could make cheaper models and then instead of fixing them you would. Just go and buy new ones. So the story is actually well, manufacturers planned in obsolescence. That's what the story is. Not that there are no repair skills. Because no, the no repair skills stuff makes it sound like we made some kind of conscious choice. And they made a conscious choice, and that affected the decisions that we made. But we didn't have all the information that manufacturers started, made sure that those skills weren't needed.
0: So I, I wonder—is that part of it? Then that to revive those skills is is one part of it, but the other part of it is to change the story that people tell each other and that we tell each other. And in other words, if if we're going to build a, a new economy based on different foundation, then we we need storytellers as well. We're going to need
1: people new, who, new narratives. Yeah. You know, because it it struck me when you were talking about that Lee that that, that was so spot on and it was like you know when we talk about the mutual bank and the, the, you know the narrative that goes out there is that people don't want branches anymore they are not coming into these branches they don't need them you know everybody's online everybody wants their you know their banking app on, on their mobile and you know but that's that's not actually quite the the truth the banks it, it's the banks that have said Actually, it's costing us too much money to put these branches here. So we would rather be able to cut those costs, glean that as profits. um, And we'll we'll just tell people that, look, you've got everything online. Who who wants to come into a branch anyway? This is so not what people want from banking services. Yes, you want online. Yes, you want your app. You want to be able to do that. But you also want to be able to talk to somebody face to face when maybe there's something going on in your life where you actually need some help, or you've run into financial problems. So the 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 need for branches is still there. They tell us we don't want money. You don't want to take out money. You want to pay for everything electronically. Uh, not really. i do. Some say, sometimes you know I want cash, but it's how they're it's how they're framing it, and they. They have the sort of the the media, I mean, when I say media, I'm talking about the mainstream media, who kind of aren't very creative in a lot of ways you know, I can be very critical of them, and I don't want to disrespect anybody, but they just go along with the main narratives that they're told. They're not going to resist that. So they're not going to say, you know, they're not going to tell a story where these bank branches have closed, for example. And oh God, people really need these. You know, why are the banks doing that? They'll just go along with that narrative that the banks are giving them, but go along with the narrative too that there are no skills for repair. You know, any of the these, these narratives that are being pushed out there to basically drive profit and consumerism. You know, that's but then and
0: um, Mary McManus.
1: The narratives of, of like us, for example,
4: or worse than actually we need something different. Or you know, Lee, and I think that's interesting what you said there about, you know, when we're talking about, oh, this time last year, there was the optimism and, um, but it seems to have gone. And Tiziana, you said it not being sustained. And then you're saying, Lee, well, actually we don't know, you know, just because it's not visible, we don't know, Has has the narrative or story shifted for people? Do you know, like say for people who never thought they were gonna end up on universal credit, but they have because of this pandemic. And they may have judged people who were on that before and not understood the kind of circumstances that can get you into a position where that's where you end up and you know for the people like the the art well, the artists maybe always had a different narrative or the musicians the creative people or the uh, the self-employed people who you know because there's so, so many winners with covid and so many losers do you know when i say winners i mean that sounds awful but you know like as in people who've been able to work at home and not spend much and their savings have increased greatly to the point where people, you know, might be spending 1500 pounds on a puppy. Do you know, well, some people are going to the food banks and that, that's literally what's happening. But I wonder for how many people has the, the narrative shifted and, um, and, and are we not seeing it? And, you know, like, I can't remember which of us said there, then suddenly something changes, you know, is there this slow build up under the surface? but they're not making it, you know, we're going to have more news stories about people queuing outside of Primark, rather. I, I feel like we're advertising that shop <laughs> actually, just by mentioning it. And, and that's despite the, the you know, the very bad publicity some of these shops have for where they, their produce comes from and the conditions that the people are, you know, are suffering um, to make the cheap clothes that we can have. But yeah, I'd, I'd love to know, will, will, will something, has something shifted that we're not aware of for many people. But I don't feel it's being really reflected so much in the narrative that the media is feeding us.
0: As, as somebody yeah. said, uh, in the mainstream media, at any rate.
4: Mm.
2: So
0: I wonder, yeah. is there a uh, case for you know, trying to, if you're trying to build an alternative economy, you need to build an, an alternative media as well, you know, <laughs> like a new media. Um and, and perhaps this is it, you know, this Some of the skills that we've learned while having to work from home, you know, to do with,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: you know, video conferencing and putting little videos together and things like that. Maybe that is also the beginning of something, a shift in if there's a, you know, there's a, maybe there's a will and an appetite there and people are now just getting used to the tools and beginning to think, oh, we can actually do this for ourselves. Again, that sort of, you know, do it yourself spirit. I don't know. Is that um... yeah.
2: Well, that makes me think about so that I know you shared that revisit in Britain piece that um, Hazel Sheffield had done on um, on positive Carnac Fergus recently, and I met Hazel at start Action Festival, and Hazel's been doing that work for quite a long time, but not but during the pandemic, as far as I'm aware, she she developed a relationship with Part of Change, which is a um, you know big funder um, that was set up by the lottery and um, through an endowment that funds community businesses. So I think that's really interesting that, that they have seen that that's part of that work is about telling those stories and, um, and you know, and that relationship with the funder, you know, with somebody who has the journalistic credibility and skills that Hazel has. And um, so that, you know, and there, obviously, there's Novara and um, and other kind of alternative byline times and that. because you know that stuff was was already in train before the pandemic. Um, but the, but the thing I'm so but there's an issue around scale, I think as well. And um and, but I'm just curious about not always doing stuff on a mass scale. And actually, you know, for for me, my work is to change that narrative in Carrick that doesn't have to be, um, you know, all online. It can be through relationships and through, you know, with other human beings like that are face-to-face as well. Um, Because to some extent it's in dialogue that you're actually able to challenge the dominant narratives, not just, not by broadcasting because there's so many competing um, narratives
1: broadcasting. If you go back to the mainstream media and the messages they give, you know, I can't actually do this to my brain every day. But if you listen mm. to the news all day long, like, you know, all the different times that the news is on, um, like TV, radio, it's even more intense. But you are getting the exact same information. By the end of the day, you could almost repeat the whole mm. um the news broadcast because it's the same one that they've had all morning since the morning that they've repeated a hundred times that day.
0: But perhaps we need more than a narrative change. Perhaps we need institutional change.
1: For, for me,
3: all this is very important and I, I do I do understand how the, the narrative uh, needs to change. I do understand how we can um, change it uh, through a a kind of very interpersonal kind of uh, exchange, and that can be very efficient. Uh, But there is also something deeper in my opinion, again, that needs to be changed and is uh, the way the bigger kind of institution needs to relate to the smaller kind of stuff because uh, I always felt that uh, through all the cooperatives that we have supported and work with uh, across Northern Ireland, there always been a kind of uh, glass ceiling that they never been able to break through. And uh, and that uh, it's... uh, Again, because there is this kind of conversation that, that doesn't go through neither the founders, Lee, because the power to change, as you know, is in England, but it doesn't come here.
1: Yeah, and yeah.
3: They've, they, the um, National Lottery in Northern Ireland is a completely different animal than the National Lottery in other regions of the UK. So, it seems that uh, even at that kind of a dialogue is so fragmented that there is a, some kind of institutional rigidity through which, uh, and the, the glass ceiling analogy, you know, it's like a women kind of uh, um, struggle. You go and then you have the glass ceiling so there are uh, new business and new initiatives something community led. And then you have the glass ceiling and the glass ceiling is made of government, other private business, other within the same <laughs> business. So it's, it's, uh, it's really fundamental and I find that, that the frustrating part. Yes, you can, you can change the mind of in one individual, but to me is how can we change the mind of the full department of government? How can we change the mind of a full founder? Why they cannot see that there are different things? Um, and, and why we don't change the mind of the, the, the media? Yes, we can create alternative to that, but uh, at the end of the day, we also needed to tackle, at least um, you know, intellectually, how do we tackle the resistance that they have towards uh, anything new or different?
1: No, I mean, I, I agree with you, and I kind of, from my own experience, have seen things like, say from the statutory or the institutional point of view, you've got people who actually are very happy with the status quo. They want things to stay where they are because it works for them. You know, they're not the people that are usually the recipients of any of the public money that has to go on the ground. And they're looking at their careers. And, and I'm talking generally here, I'm not talking about individuals. And I know that within those systems, there are good people who want to do something better and different, but generally those systems are there and they maintain the status quo because the status quo is okay and then what you've got are the people who engage with them from say the community and voluntary sector who are are willing to work with in that status quo they're willing to do what you know okay w- what are you looking for what do you want to spend the money on this year okay we'll, we'll you know put up um put in applications for programs that fit what you're looking for so it's almost like a symbiosis between the two. You've got the, the, the institutions and the funders who are very happy with the status quo. You've got the recipients of that, that money um, within the community and voluntary sector, again speaking generally, who are willing to work within that status quo as long as they can get the money. And then if you come in, if you if, if somebody comes on the left field and is a challenger to that, though that person has to be sort of crushed and killed because they're going to upset the whole apple cart for everybody. They're um, not only are they going to maybe upset the status quo and disrupt that, but they're also going to be competition for the people who should be just getting this money. You know, it should be just a steady stream of this money coming to them. So that's, to me, you've got everybody in cahoots to keep the system in place. And it's very hard then, you know, people even talk about why do we not make inroads into these systems because they're so huge and they, they are very powerful and they have a lot of resources, far more resources than the likes of us or people trying to do alternative things. So it's very, very difficult to start breaking them. It's not impossible. In fact, if I thought it was impossible, I couldn't get up in the morning, but um, I, I know it's possible, but it's just very hard. And, um, you know, but you have to realize that you will be worked against Tatiana. There will be people actively working against you because you for you to exist is a threat to them, maybe not right now, but further down the line. What if you start to do things and get results that they can't get and then the funders decide, oh right, we're going to start paying this per you know, we're still going to start putting more money into this kind of thing instead of what we've always done. So you're a threat. So you do have to be crushed, you do have to be stopped. Um, that might sound a bit conspiratorial, but that's, I've seen that for myself. And I've um, also, you know, you know, personally, but I've also seen evidence of it happening to others as well.
0: Well, I guess that it is possible. And I suppose, you know, Mary, you've talked about a couple of examples uh, before, and, and, you know, in the Imagine Festival, for example, about you know Preston and Cleveland and, and North Airshire and, and other places where somehow there there has been a breakthrough in, in thinking, you know, people are starting to think differently and say, oh, this is a, yeah. a, a better way to do things and, and we're gonna put some resources into it. Maybe you wanna reflect on that or
4: yeah, I mean and, and also just to reflect on the fact that, you know, I um, from Tiziana and, and Bridget outlining how difficult it is. But yet here we are still, as Bridget said, (laughs) you think it's possible. And even though it's hard, there are lots of people, including ourselves, who think it's possible and and want to work towards that. And I think there's I I definitely think Covid has resulted. I think the number of people feeling that way was growing because the inequality has been so bad and growing. And also the climate crisis has been bringing about change as well. so I mean that gives me hope. I, mean, I love the fact that despite it being so hard, there are many of us that think, yeah, no, it's possible. We're going to do it. Do you know, it's a great thing of the human spirit, a great sign, or you know, a great um, reflection of how the human spirit is. But yes, in Cleveland and in Cleveland influenced Preston with community wealth building, where they um, Cleveland looked at the, the the situation in their city and in a very rundown area, they realised that they had institutions with lots of money, public money. So the idea is that where there's been deindustrialization, the public sector then becomes, or the not-for-profit sector becomes the main driver of economic activity in an area. So the hospital and the university started looking at their procurement and, their, and, 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 and actually there was, like funding really was a very important part of the Cleveland story. And what's referred to as patient capital, was invested in worker-owner cooperatives, and the first being a laundry that would serve the needs of the hospital. So this hospital had been existing there, but yet the people around it um, living in the areas were living in poverty. But so the idea which some people then put together was to to fund this worker-owner cooperative that would give people not just a job, but also an asset um, to help them you know, not return to poverty. So it took a long time, like it, it took years before that um, laundrette became profitable and it is now profitable and it it um, outbid a private, a big private company um, to get a contract for the hospital, a bigger contract. And also there's now two other co-worker owner cooperatives, like one growing food and another um, doing solar panels, um, an, an energy company. So that influenced Preston. And in Preston, and, and the model's called community wealth building. And then in Preston took this up in 2013. Round about the same time, Belfast also looked at this. So it's like there were, there's, sometimes there are policy makers who are looking at, at outside and thinking, this is interesting. Maybe this could work here. So Preston looked at this, but they ran with it. Belfast didn't. Belfast looked at this. It looked like a good idea where they would harness the power of public procurement to support um local small medium enterprises cooperatives um but Preston ran with the idea and achieved really good results and yes there's people thinking differently there and now people have been in other places have been influenced by Preston and I mean if you look if you go on um the Centre for Local Economic Strategies website from Manchester and look at the map their community wealth building map you'll see lots of little um pinpoints across Scotland, England, and Wales. You will not see any on this island (laughs) yet, but um, you have people there who believe that this is an answer to, um, not a silver bullet, it's part of an answer to dealing with inequality and dealing with poverty. I mean, I recently heard two politicians say at a meeting that there's no silver bullet for dealing with poverty. Right, which I felt was such a, a way of saying, I'm not gonna, we're not gonna do anything about this. Do you know what I mean? So the people, the, the, the people in Preston or North Ayrshire, who practice this or in Hackney in London or, you know, they, they're not saying this is impossible. They're saying, actually, we believe that it is possible to tackle this. And we're going to try this, what well, community wealth building is a systemic approach to changing the, the economy. So they're thinking it's doable, you know, and, and it's been proved it's doable. It needs adapted for each place. But we have places that have paved the way to show to the nervous policymakers, you know, that actually this makes sense. Um, it's doable. It's practical. So so let's do it.
0: Many thanks to Mary McManus, Tiziana O'Hara, Bridget Meehan and Lee Robb. For further information, visit thecombination.org.uk or follow us on Twitter at combination underscore NI.